Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm talking with Ashley Sweeney, whose debut novel, Eliza Waite, follows its resourceful heroine from Missouri to the San Juan Islands, near the North Pacific coastline of Washington State, then to the southern coast of Alaska during the Klondike Gold Rush, circa 1898. When we first meet her, Eliza has fallen on hard times. March 7, 1898. Eliza spies the slim piece of cardstock turned face down in the mire, a perfectly formed rectangle lying on top of the slurry of mud and dung. Ordinarily, Eliza does not stop to pick up stray pieces of paper, especially in the center of a bustling city street. But here, crossing First Street at King in Seattle, Eliza raises her skirt above her ankles and bends over at the waist. She retrieves the cardstock in her raw, chapped fingers. Get out of my way, missus! A spray of sludge splatters Eliza's traveling skirt as she narrowly avoids a team of horses barreling down King Street. Hungry, nearly broke, and now without passage to Alaska for another week, Eliza prays the item in her hand might be a voucher for a cut rate at one of Pioneer Square's less squalid hotels. She turns the slip over in her hand and squints to read the fine print. Contract to transport at sea, not transferable, one-way passage only, second class, stamped S.S. Ketchikan, March 9, 1898. Eliza catches her breath. Two days from now. Eliza keeps her head lowered, half thinking the owner of the ticket will appear like a magician and rip this slice of gold from her grasp. Eliza steps up to the wooden planked sidewalk and leans against a clabbered storefront to catch her breath. She adjusts her spectacles and reads slowly. Her eyes do not deceive her, and no one pays her any mind. She wipes the cardstock with her handkerchief and slips it into her handbag. A bona fide ticket. Not a used stub or a receipt. And now, please join me in welcoming Ashley Sweeney. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, let's start by talking about you, which is the way that I normally start. Uh, you work as a journalist and a community activist. Uh, you've also taught various subjects to high school and college students. Tell us about your life pre-Eliza Waite. Well, I grew up in New York City, and I graduated from Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts in 1979. And shortly after that, I attended the Stanford Publishing course in the summer of 1979. And while I was in the West, I decided that I really wanted to stay in the West. So I became a VISTA volunteer for a couple of years in Bergen and Washington. And I've been in the Pacific Northwest ever since. So I was married and have four children, worked part-time as a journalist and a teacher, and I've been very involved in organizations and events to social justice. So a very full life before I sat down to become a novelist. And what made you decide to become a novelist? 
Well, that's a funny story. I saw Our Town with my father when I was 12 years old in the sixth grade. And the next morning, I marched into my sixth grade classroom and declared that I was going to be a writer. So since 1969, I've had a fire in my belly about becoming a writer. And that was fleshed out in as many authors will say in their past. Junior high and high school, I worked on newspapers, literary magazines, and yearbooks, and that segued into a career in journalism. Um, I worked for 10 years for a small town paper, doing news stories, features, and a weekly column. So that was a very busy time of my life, especially with four young children. And after that, when I became a part-time English teacher, I was writing freelance articles for magazines and submitting poetry to anthologies. So really, since 1969 to the present, I've always been immersed in words. Um, the turning point for me came in 2005. Um, I went through a um, major life change at that point and thought, this is my time. So I gave myself the gift of attending a writer's retreat in Wales in 2006. And the following eight years, I've attended workshops and conferences and other retreats to hone, hone my craft. So where did you get the idea for the story that became Eliza Waite? In 2008, it was a rare and beautiful October day here in the Northwest, and my new husband, Michael, and I had anchored at a secluded cove on an uninhabited island called Cypress Island in the San Juan Islands, um, north of Seattle. And that morning, um, we decided to climb Eagle Cliff, which is this huge 700-foot basalt face that overlooks the whole of the San Juan Island archipelago. And on the way through that loop, we came across a, a pond, and we realized at that point that we had missed the turnoff to the cliff. But instead of doubling back and trying to find the trailhead, we continued on the trail and it led to this sheltered cove on the island's north side, just actually at the base of the cliff that we were intending to climb. And at that cove, we came across an abandoned cabin, just a dilapidated, ramshackle, rustic building that had no doors and windows and a sagging roof and populated with mouse droppings. And I just stood in that cabin and I had this just premonition that a story would evolve from that moment, who would live there and when and why. And so the seed for Eliza Waite was born because we missed the turn to Eagle Cliff and ended up at this sheltered cove. What a wonderful story. Um, now, was Eliza Waite the first novel that you wrote? No. Actually, I wrote a very dark piece of contemporary fiction from 2005 to 2007, and I call it my private novel. It's never been published, and I don't know if it ever will be. I, I believe it's a beautiful work of fiction, but it was something that I had to do as I worked through a very difficult time in my life. 
I think a lot of writers have at least one novel that they either don't publish or they publish only much later after they have rewritten it or reworked it. But it sounds like you were very happy with the novel. You just didn't publish it for personal reasons. Yes, that is correct. So you live in Washington State uh, and have for some time. Uh, That's obviously an advantage in telling the tale. And you mentioned that you went to Cyprus Island. um, And you can see that. I mean, it's the depiction of Eliza's life there is very, it feels very real. Um, It's clear that you know the area well. Um, Have you visited Alaska as well? No, um, I I hadn't before that. And, of course, the Pacific Northwest is an environment that's fraught with rain and filled with old-growth timber, and it's geographically very beautiful mountains and oceans and islands. And it has two histories. It has the history of the New West, and it has the history of the old native peoples. So the the Pacific Northwest and the San Juan Islands, which are a part of Washington, where I've been boating and kayaking and hiking and bicycling, um, you know, since the, since the 1970s. That's all very familiar territory to me. But I'm a New Yorker and I'm afraid of bears. So, you know, Alaska was this, you know, the last frontier, this formidable environment. But it was a, a wonderful transition for my character to move from a rather stagnant and introspective part of her life into a lively and raucous time during the Klondike Gold Rush. So all of my research in Alaska was fascinating, and I enjoyed every minute of it. We traveled in 2013 to Alaska for an extended period of time, and I met with museum curators and librarians and shopkeepers and just poured through much archival media, cookbooks and diaries and old books. In fact, I amassed about a hundred books about the Klondike Gold Rush era. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time of research for me. And as an American literature and history major at Wheaton, it just was an extension of what I've loved doing, and that was learning about, you know, new places and new histories. So um, we'll get back to the research again in a little bit, but tell me how you got from the image, basically, that you had of this uh, cabin on Cypress Island and the idea of there being a story there. How did you get from that to actually developing the, the idea for the novel? Well, I gave myself the gift of a week at Hedgebrook, which is a women's writing retreat center on Whidbey Island, Washington, in 2010. And for that week, I lived in a tiny cabin, fed myself, tended a wood stove, just was completely immersed in a life of a woman alone in a cabin. And author Jane Hamilton was the facilitator that week. She was just a wonderful resource. I would meet with her each morning. And then the rest of the day, I would retreat to my little cabin. And con- And at that point, I conjured up 
the persona of Eliza Waite. So it was very real to me to be living in many ways as Eliza would have lived. We had no outside contact, um, you know, no internet, no telephone, no television. And for seven days, I just ate and drank and read and wrote and became really immersed in my character. What a great opportunity. It's uh, it's very obvious in the book that, I mean, it, it feels very lived, uh, her experience. It's very detailed. It's very, um, it's, there are emotions there, of course, but the emotions are almost conveyed through the details of what she does, you know, day after day, her routine right. and all of that kind of thing. It's It's really well done. So well, tell us about Eliza. Let's start talking about her. When we meet her, she's a young widow in her 20s. Um, but she was born and raised in Missouri, as she likes to say. Um, how right. did she get from there to Cypress Island? Well, she was a woman who grew to maturity in the late half of the 19th century. And as we all are, Eliza is a product of her time. She she lived in her parents' household. She wore clothing that bound her midsection, and her marriage prospects depended on her appearance and status in society. And that's key here, because she was not a woman who was free to make her own decisions about the trajectory of her life. So when she becomes impregnated by um, her uncle, her marriage prospects dropped to zero at that point. So raised in that type of social milieu in the 1880s in Victorian America, her options probably would have been to live at home for the rest of her life or perhaps after the birth of her son and still living at home, she would perhaps have become a shopkeeper. They, her she would not have been a school teacher because she wasn't single and without child and she probably would not have become a nurse. So the, her, a clerk might have been the only option for her. So the fact that her father wants to remove her from Missouri for his own gain means he brokers a marriage for her. And this marriage is to a pompous and self-absorbed preacher who lives um, nearby. And this preacher's desire is to leave Missouri and to travel to the far ends of the Western continent. So Eliza is in fact forced to marry Jacob because she doesn't have any free choice for her future. So she, at that point, accepts her circumstance and moves with him and his wanderlust to Cypress Island. And as you've indicated, he's not really a very pleasant person. Uh, no. <laughs> how does their... How, their marriage doesn't last long enough in the book that we have to worry about there being real spoilers. So tell us a little bit about how they relate to each other and how he relates to her child. Right. <clears throat> well, first of all, his persona is not aligned with the tenets of his faith, and that becomes very obvious through his conversation and his actions. 
And I feel that he uses his position of authority for his own personal advancement and really has no emotional tie whatsoever to Eliza or her son, Jonathan. In fact, Eliza and Jonathan are really a burden that he's forced to bear, and he's very dismissive with them and of them. Again, Eliza doesn't have much choice in the matter. Divorce would have been out of the question, and suicide might have been the only out, but she wouldn't have chosen that route because of the bond that she had with her son. Her happiness really comes through her relationship with her son, Jonathan, and in a way, they're an island to themselves within that family. Although Eliza does have one friend named Ida, who she shares some laughter and intimacies with. But again, Ida um, also succumbs to smallpox. So um, we probably should mention that, at least at the beginning of the book, while she's a young woman and all the way through Cypress Island, uh, Eliza doesn't consider herself to be attractive. She's been told that she's too big and too plain and uh, she's got red hair and that's not you know, fashionable and all of that kind of thing. So in addition to the realities of her situation, which is that she's had this, uh, well, she, she, she loves her child, but the, the pregnancy itself is forced on her and then she, the marriage is forced on her. She's also probably less, in some ways, less capable of resisting because she doesn't meet the standards of her that she's been raised to believe are important. Right. She's been told her whole life that she's an ugly duckling and she realizes that herself and she, she accepts that about her outward appearance. That has obviously some import on how she feels about herself. And through the novel, we see how those feelings change. So when she first goes to Cypress Island, there's an entire community there, not a large one. Um, but as you've mentioned, there's a smallpox epidemic. And I'm guessing that vaccination was not common in the United States at that time. But in any case, there is soon um, the situation on Cypress Island soon changes. So what was it like? You mentioned a little bit about what it's like now. What was it like in the 1890s? Cyprus has largely been populated very sparsely. There was an article in our local paper, the Skagit Valley Herald, a couple of months ago about the history of Cyprus. And of course, I knew about the history of Cyprus, but it was um, it was good to see this article, you know, published for the for the greater population. There were no more than 34 people on Cyprus at its heyday in 1892. And the town of Eagle Harbor had a general store and a post office and a school and a cannery. So I took that and expanded it by about five. I had about 150 people living in Eagle Harbor, which I call Fisher Bay, again, with a general store and a post office and a school and a cannery. And I added a church because we needed to have Jacob Stamper come to this Methodist missionary church. So, of course, with literary license, I added that there was also a church there. Also swelled the population. It was a it was a place for miners, loggers, fishermen, 
And, of course, the Chinese worked in all of the canneries in the Pacific Northwest, and so there would have been a small Chinese population as well. But today, there's no one on Cypress Island except for a few old fishing cabins that are grandfathered in. It's completely Department of Natural Resource land now, so there's no development and no ferry service to the island. You can only get there by private boat, um, power, sail, or kayak. So that, in some ways very much replicates what Eliza experiences because after the smallpox epidemic, everybody leaves and she decides to stay. And it says so quite a bit about her character um, that she does decide to, to um, stay. So tell us about her as a person. Well, four people remain on the island in the novel. There's a character called Mad Virgil, who's a deranged man and who has what society called at that time a half-breed son. Tuttle, who's an old reclusive bachelor with whom Eliza has a a strained relationship, and Eliza. So she she's definitely living on her own for three years as a survivalist. But when I really started to think about it, she she didn't have that many options. She didn't want to return to Missouri and the life that she had there, and she isn't equipped with living anywhere else in her life. So Cyprus is really the only life that she knows. She had been a wife and a mother there, and then she learned how to, you know, to live alone for those three years. But probably more importantly in, in the first half of the novel is she can't leave Jonathan, even though he's buried in the cemetery there. So she remains on that island and works through those those stages of grief. And, you know, she did not have the opportunity to talk to a counselor or a psychotherapist, but in her own way, she goes through all of those stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. And because grieving is a personal process and really has no time limit or or a correct way to to go about going through that it was a three-year process for Eliza to go through the denial anger bargaining depression and finally acceptance of her situation yes and it's such a terrible thing to have to lose a child and right. he's very young I, I never was quite sure whether he was three or five but i mean very young so five yeah um he and and he's the only person that she really connects to except for this friend ida whom she also loses right um, so her life on cypress island is not easy and she has enormous strength and resilience even though she's dealing with this you know terrible emotional crisis of the loss right. of her son. And she maintains that. I mean, it's it's particularly likable in her that no matter what life throws at her, and it throws all kinds of things at her on the island, um, it, she just gets back up and keeps on going. I right. Mean, literally, she will, you know, fall down and or, you know, chop her foot with a an axe or something, and she gets back up and she keeps going and looks for some herbal medicine or something to fix it. Well, it's basically a life of survival, and she has no one to rely on except herself. 
So one thing that Eliza really taught me as an author is about being a realist, because I don't consider myself a realist. And Eliza really taught me that putting one foot in front of the other still moves you in the direction toward a better version of yourself. You can't just hop that divide. You you really need to walk that step by step to get to the place where you need to be. So I really enjoyed lingering in those scenes where Eliza is going through her day day drudgery. And my husband, Michael, was really able to teach me a lot, and I could teach that to my character. Because, of course, growing up in New York, I had never been camping or set a fire or jigged for lingcod or chopped wood or lived overnight alone in a forest. So it was wonderful to have really everyday survival lessons as I went through this and could incorporate those lessons into making Eliza's life very authentic. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because they're not plot elements per se. It's not going to give away any spoilers. What is it like for her just everyday life? You know, every day has its chores and she just kind of goes one through one after another. What, what kinds of things does she have to do? Right. Well, she, I, I found those old tea towels at one point going through an old um, antique store and it was all about um, you know on Monday you you do your laundry and um, on you know Tuesday you go about another chore and Wednesday and Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday and that is that is really the life that that Eliza has on Mondays it's Eliza's laundry day and chapter three begins with Monday's launder. Tote three wash tubs of water from Potter's Creek. Boil water enough to fill one of three wash tubs two thirds full. Fill the other two wash tubs with cold water and place them nearby. Sort laundry, first under things, then blouses, sheets, towels, last skirts, socks, and rags. Plunge clothing into the hot water tub and rub each individual piece on the washboard, adding soap. Repeat. Remove clean items from the first wash tub and plunge into the first rinse wash tub. Wring clothing thoroughly. Plunge clothing into the second rinse wash tub. Wring out clothes again and hang them to dry immediately on the clothesline. So that paragraph will set the scene of what her Mondays were like. And she adhered to her calendar. On Tuesdays, she gathered and chopped wood. On Wednesdays, she planted and weeded and canned. On Thursday, she mended and ironed. And on Friday, that was her fishing day, regardless of the weather. So she would dig for clams. She would spear crab. She would row to jig for lingcod or rockfish and perhaps every now and then would catch a salmon. But Saturday is her favorite day. Eliza is by avocation and later as vocation a baker. 
And she loves Saturdays because Saturday is her baking day and she bakes for her week on Saturdays. And then Sunday, being the good Methodist that she is, she adheres to scripture and the chapter ends. It is most deservedly the day. Amen. Of rest. <laughs> she definitely um, has earned it. <laughs> Just thinking of that passage, it reminds me my, why I always think that the washing machine is actually the greatest invention of civilization. Right. Oh, it's so true. And just putting you know, myself in her place and what she would need to go through day by day. And of course, in this hostile weather environment, we, we have the most glorious summers in the Pacific Northwest. July, August, and September are heavenly here, but the rest of the year can be quite drear. And she needed to live through three years of that cycle with only three months of each year being, you know, truly a paradise. So that adds to, I believe, her resolve that she can get through living alone, not only on any island, but on quite an inhospitable island. Yes. Um, despite the isolation and the hardship, she does struggle on uh, through everything. And she, I mean, just to get to the general store, she has to get in a rowboat and row by herself, you know, for a couple of right. hours, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just yes. unbelievable. Uh, at one point, though, she almost accepts another marriage. So tell us a little bit about Steiner and how he meets her and uh, how that comes about. Right. Well, Steiner is a very complicated study. She, Eliza meets Steiner after she breaks her ankle on New Year's Day, skipping along the shoreline and yelling to the world, Happy New Year. And she realizes that there's no one on the island that can help her. No one can hear her. And she needs to go across to Orcas Island to Dobe, the little store that's just across from her cabin at Smuggler's Cove. And in her near delirium of pain, Steiner, who has just arrived to help his uncle at the Dobe store, literally saves her from a near certain drowning in the strait and brings her back to Dobe where she recuperates for a month and a day. So during that month, Eliza and and Steiner get to know each other and their relationship is rocky and goes forward, you know, through part one. But he's really a product of his own environment. One of the questions I have in the back of the book is, you know, describe Eliza's negative qualities and describe Steiner's positive qualities, because that's what makes both of these characters truly human. Eliza is not just all positive qualities by any means, and Steiner is not all negative qualities. Uh, He's a product of his environment. He was an orphan and a loner and a drifter, and he sees this opportunity to possibly take over his uncle's store as he's running from the law and Orcus is a, you know, at the edge of the, the known world at that point. So he sees that as an opportunity to succeed. And I think while he's there, 
some part of him realizes that he desires to settle down, although it's not a part of his history and it certainly is not a part of his DNA. So he he is a complicated study, but he does have some good qualities and there are some glimpses of that throughout the story. Oh, She's wary that, of him. Yeah, she is wary of him. But in sense, I mean, based on what you said earlier, it's a mark of growth in her that she doesn't immediately jump at the uh, the first offer of marriage. She's She has grown right. enough now that she doesn't feel that she has to do that. Right. She has growing feelings for him, but she is hesitant of a relationship because she sees him as a Jekyll and Hyde persona. And she's just finished reading that novel in in the book. And so it's very fresh on her mind about how someone can have two distinct personalities. And she sees those two distinct personalities because Steiner is so kind to her as she's recuperating that then she witnesses how gruff he is with his uncle who owns the store. And again, when Steiner comes to visit Eliza, she witnesses, you know, a violent attack on her goat but when he sees her he's all sweetness so she's very wary of him she is rewarded with disappointment in her relationship with him but I think she does grow and learn a lot about her own needs and wants during that failed romance and actually, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm remembering that one of the things that happens to Eliza while she's going back and forth to this general store is that the the store owner, who is Steiner's uncle, gives her magazines. And in the magazine, she's beginning to read what today we would call feminist literature. Yes. And she grows very fond of the writer Kate Chopin. And Kate Chopin becomes a silent mentor to her, to Eliza, during this time. In fact, Kate Chopin's work really is an undercurrent to the entire novel. And her Chopin's novel, The Awakening, is reminiscent of Eliza's awakening through this novel. Yes, there's a lot going on in this novel. And I want to say that I did not see Steiner as an uh, as an overwhelmingly negative character. I mean, he's actually more likable than Jacob, uh, who, of course, is also a, mm-hmm. a human right. character. I mean, he's not all bad either. So I was I was glad that Eliza was nervous about him because he did seem to have some issues, shall we say? But um, but no, I I mean I could see why. Uh, why women were attracted to him, for example. Yes. So without going into all of the details, uh, Eliza then uh, leaves, when she's gone through this process of grieving, she leaves Cypress Island and goes north uh, through a piece of luck, which I described in the introduction. She goes to southern Alaska. And she ends up in a town called Skagway, which is north of Juneau, uh, but still in southern Alaska. And she is smart enough not to actually get involved in the Klondike gold rush, although she, I mean, that is, she doesn't go out to the Klondike. So tell us what she is doing there. Well, Eliza, as I say, knew that the only way that she could succeed in leaving the island 
if she didn't go home was to reinvent herself. And really, the only thing she knew how to do well was bake. She was an award-winning baker at the Orcas Island Fair. As we mentioned earlier, Saturdays were her favorite day when she'd bake for the week. And so baking was her ticket to success. And just to put it into some kind of historical perspective, there had been a Great Depression in the United States in 1893, and it was akin to the depression of 1929 and our most recent, you know, depression in 2008. So it was a time when it was, hardship was, had, was across the country. So the glimmer of gold in, it was discovered in 1896 in the Yukon and brought to public attention in 1897. It was like a time when people went mad for gold. They dropped everything. People dropped their lives. Men and women both just flew to this promise of this easy money where gold nuggets could be plucked out of creeks and people would become millionaires overnight. Of course, the reality of that is only about 3% of any prospector ever fared well. But it was that mad rush toward gold and every class and nationality and ethnicity flew to Alaska, got there by any means possible in you know, out for him or herself in search of fortune. So Eliza is part of that mass of humanity. It's where everyone was going. She didn't just have all these options in front of her and say, now where would I like to go? It was a madness sweeping the nation. And so she got caught up in that and used her skills as a baker to open a very successful bakery on Skagway's streets. Skagway was the really the first city that you would arrive to and be the gateway to going up to the Klondike. So 10,000 people passed through Skagway in 1898, which is the year that the novel is set. That's a lot of donuts. Yeah, there was no formal law enforcement there. There was no infrastructure. There was only a handful of people who lived in Skagway before 1897 so the building was a it was it was it was a classic boom town hastily built buildings and shop services bars brothels there were con artists and prospectors it was in fact there was a quote in that i found in the um in the oregonian from Um, Portland, Oregon, and quote, it says, Skagway has more liars per square mile than can be raked up in any 1,000 square mile area elsewhere. Unquote. (laughs) So, so that was, that was published at the height of Skagway's, you know, zenith. But you couldn't trust anybody. There were, there were murders, the graft, deceit, theft, uh, 
it was a it was a very frightening time but on on the same uh, you know conversation it was also a very exciting time living at the edge of this new boom town up in Alaska Yes, I'm sure it was. Um, one of the things that gets Eliza through this experience, which is, I mean, she doesn't go through the worst extremes, but it's certainly a big adjustment for her after Cypress Island, is her friendship with Pearlie. So tell us a little bit about Pearlie. Who is she and what does Eliza yeah. learn from her? I I love the character of Pearlie. I do she's too. A very, <laughs> she's a very unlikely friend. And I have a couple of friends who I would call unlikely friends and it just opens you up to the possibility that you may be able to have friendships across lines that you might have drawn for yourself in the past. But I call true, I call Pearlie a, a true and unlikely friend of Eliza. Oh, she certainly teaches Eliza a lot. She teaches Eliza about femininity she helps Eliza to transform her outward appearance. She's also not ashamed of who she is or how she got there as a madam and a brothel owner. And Eliza accepts that about Pearlie. Pearlie is like an open book, very generous. She's frank about female sexuality, which was a taboo subject and has remained a taboo subject for probably, you know, the next at least 50 years. And I believe she's also a model of what true affection looks like because Pearlie's relationship with her lover, Shorty Richardson, is a model that Eliza has never seen before. She didn't see a loving relationship her parents. She did not have a loving relationship with her husband. And she sees what true affection really looks like. And Pearlie's also a listening and supportive friend to Eliza, although they do still have their own secrets. And I would say that Pearlie is an example of a truly modern woman of 1898. Yes, I would say that too. She's she's a very appealing character. She really is. So uh, I can't let you go without talking about the recipes. Where did you find the recipes? Uh, most of the time when you're reading through the book, Eliza is actually making a dish and then we get the recipes and then there's some more right. at the back. I love old recipes. So tell us right. where they come from. Well, I thought of it early on in part one when... Eliza was baking and I knew that she would become a baker and I thought I really got to incorporate more about the the baking in in the novel than just, you know, have her baking and not <clears throat> not expounding on it. So I started looking up a lot of old recipes from newspapers in the eighteen eighties and that became a long but very fun chapter in my research for Eliza Waite. So I found a cache of recipes from a newspaper in Connecticut, actually, Wyndham, Connecticut. And I wrote to them and asked them if I would be able to, you know, use some of these recipes in the novel, and they were thrilled that I would do so. So I peppered in 33 recipes throughout the novel because I didn't really want it to be 
foodie fiction, but I wanted the recipes to, you know, resonate at the, you know, on the page. So that was all well and good. And when the novel was finished, I thought, you know, I really should try all of these recipes. But I was getting to my deadline with the publisher and I just needed extra help with that. There was no way that I could bake 33 recipes in the time that I had. So I put out an all call to my book club and family, friends, neighbors. Would anyone be willing to help me replicate the recipes in the novel? And I was so overwhelmed with the response. I got Everyone said yes. There wasn't anyone who said no. And we baked all 33 of them, and I got to taste most of them, actually. And there were probably only about four of them that needed any changes. And as someone who used to work at a newspaper, I know that there can, even today, be errors in newspaper articles. So obviously, some of these were typographical errors. For instance, one recipe called for a cup of yeast, which is ridiculous. And another one had no shortening in it whatsoever. So we did amend about four of them. But a funny thing is I asked all of the recipe testers to write me a paragraph about the their experience. And if we have time, I have a really funny paragraph that one of my book club members wrote. Oh, I'd love to hear and, it. Go ahead. Okay. She said she was making Eliza's Johnny Cake. And she wrote, I grew up with grandparents who called cornbread Johnny Cake, who served it with black-eyed peas, sautéed greens, grits, and hominy. This was not my grandma's Johnny Cake. The recipe went together easily enough, although I questioned the exclusion of fat, such as lard or butter, and it seemed a little heavy on the cornmeal ratio. I soured some milk with lemon and added the mixed ingredients to an oiled cast-iron skillet, which went into the stove for 20 minutes. The result was interesting. My husband called it Johnny Particle Board. It looked nice and rustic in the pan, smelled good in the oven, but was dry as dust in the mouth. The first thing my husband asked was, why didn't you add yogurt or chili or creamed corn to the recipe? And I responded, hands on hips, would Eliza have had those items in her cupboard? So that was a funny example of one of the paragraphs that one of my recipe tasters made for me. But the ingredients are all what we would find in a normal pantry. And many people have asked me about um, saleratus, which is a baking powder. So any recipe that had saleratus mentioned, you could just substitute baking powder. Oh, baking powder, not baking soda. Yes. Okay. Yes. Baking powder. So, uh, yeah. So the, what I really liked about the recipes is that they have measurements. You know, the older recipes often just say, take one part of this and two parts of that. And you're kind of going, okay, <laughs> how much is that? But these are like, you know, a quarter of a teacup. You can understand what that would be in modern terms. So I'm glad to know that they're, they're usable because they really look, some of them look delicious. Yes, the, my favorites, the pecan tarts are my favorite. They're a wonderful, wonderful bite. And the white vegetable soup is another favorite. In fact, I made it last night in anticipation of this interview that I would have had my last meal with something that Eliza would have eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not quite your last meal. But 
towards the interview. <laughs> I've never had anybody quite that nervous before. <laughs> oh no, actually, I'm that's trying not to be true. very authentic. Yes, here. you are. <laughs> so, what would you like readers to take away from Eliza Waite? Well, probably that no matter what obstacles you might face, woman or man, that it's possible to get through those hardships with time and introspection and resolve. And I also hope that readers will find the courage to make some life-changing decisions and move on with their lives. In fact, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a woman who I know who had just finished the novel. And she said that Eliza, the character of Eliza, has taught her that she needs to move on from this period of grief that she's from which she's been suffering after the death of her husband three years ago. And so I really felt humbled and honored that someone would write me and that fiction would really transcend into into modern day life. That that these characters really do have something to say to us if we if we listen to what they have to say. What a heartening story. And how about you? Are you moving on to another novel at this point? I am, although I had no idea the time that the post-production phase would take and subsequent book tours. I've been touring all over the Northwest and the West Coast, and in two weeks I have a gig on a cruise line going to Alaska where I'll be speaking on the cruise line and then speaking at all the ports in Alaska, Ketchikan, Juneau, Skagway, and Anchorage. And then I have an extensive East Coast tour coming up in October. So I've realized that this six months is not for working on my next novel, but I do have a wonderful idea in mind, and it's about the first white woman who came to Oregon during the early part of the 19th century and that that character will be based on a historical character although she drops out of history and I will be able to conjure up the rest of her story so I'm looking forward to that I've, I've started the research on that and hope to be finished well that's wonderful thank you so much for sharing your time with us today yes I've enjoyed every minute thank you so much and thank you for listening to our podcast once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Ashley Sweeney about her debut novel, Eliza Waite. You can find out more about her at http colon slash slash Ashley E. Sweeney with an E dot com. So that's A-S-H-L-E-Y-E-S-W-E-E-N-E-Y. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. This year, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that, for one reason or another, don't fit into my interview schedule. So the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.